All right, so uh, this morning, uh, as you see on your notes, we're going to begin what is going to be somewhere between a four and a six-week series on the depth and riches of God's forgiveness. Uh, and what I want to do to start is to give you a little background on what led us to undertake a multi-week study, uh, Sunday school series in which we focus at least initially on the doctrine of vertical forgiveness, that is, God's forgiveness of us. Uh, given the facts of COVID, a new church plant last August, and all the new visitors that we've seen throughout the last year or two of pretty significant transitions, uh, I'm not sure I would be right to assume that you all know this, that Calvary Bible Church has, and I think rightly, placed great emphasis on the doctrine of horizontal forgiveness. That is the doctrine of how we're supposed to forgive one another and how we're supposed to seek one another's forgiveness when we've sinned against each other. Uh, and the fact is, that is such a pressing issue for so many that I can say from my personal experience that one of the most frequent homework assignments I've given out in discipleship and counseling contexts is to have people listen to Pastor Dan's four-part series called Forgiveness, God's Remedy for Sin. Uh, and that series is available on the CBC app under the sermons, uh, if you'd like to go look it up. Uh, now, whereas Pastor Dan gives most of his time in that series to the nuts and bolts of horizontal forgiveness, forgiveness uh, among ourselves, Pastor Randy and I plan to team up for the next several weeks and give most of our time in this series to the glories of our vertical forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us. Uh, now, you might ask if horizontal forgiveness is the more practical doctrine, if it's where we live in everyday life as we try to keep short accounts of sin in an effort to make our relationships, especially in the church and in our families, a reflection of the gospel. If that's the case, if it's the more practical doctrine, then why would we spend the bulk of this series emphasizing vertical forgiveness? Well, I think uh, Rod May, and I, he's not in here, he's down the hall teaching, uh, Rod prompted us to think about that when he suggested a series along these lines back in January. Uh, and I can speak for myself here, that sort of got my gears turning, especially with regard to a text I think he brought up when he was suggesting the series, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, and I'm not even going to read for it or read from that text right now. Uh, I think Randy might actually cover that text in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I just want to point out something from the parable Jesus tells there. And I think this is something we're going to see in a number of texts and in a number of ways in the weeks ahead. The fact of God's forgiveness of us is a huge motivation in Scripture for us to do hard things. I'll say that again. The fact of God's forgiveness of us is a huge motivation in Scripture for us to do hard things. Through the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus teaches that we ought to be forgiving to one another. It ought to be easier and even in a sense natural for us to have mercy on others if the Lord has had such mercy on us to forgive our unpayable debt. And so, of course, that's true when it comes to interpersonal forgiveness, but this is a principle that also reaches to a more fundamental level. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Paul strikes a similar note in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, when he writes of striving with all of the energy that God powerfully works within me. Verses like these point to a truth with which we're well familiar, right? We don't believe in a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps model of sanctification. Of course, there's effort involved, but there's also a God-given heart. There's energy that God powerfully works within us to animate our all-out effort. And as we also know, 
although God is sometimes kind to seemingly flip a switch and cause us not to struggle with the sin anymore, more often we can see the means that God uses. We can see the truths that he uses to convict us. We can see the instructions he uses to, to inform us. And we can see the preachers and the counselors he brings our way to exhort us and to stir us up to put off our sin and to put on God-graced works of love. And so it is also in the matter of how we get an enlarged heart, how we get the will and the energy to struggle and strive against sin and positively to do the difficult things that love often requires. We can see the means that God uses there also. And in a word, perhaps the central way God enlarges hearts and supplies energy to run in his ways is by the reality of his forgiveness. And so here we are. Over these several weeks, we plan to examine the depth and riches of God's forgiveness in at least four of its aspects. And you can see these noted just above the outline for this morning. Uh, Today, we'll cover God's forgiveness and our curse in two weeks after Easter. On April 11th, Randy will cover God's forgiveness and our sin debt. Uh, Then April 25th, because we'll have baptism on the 18th, Randy will teach on God's forgiveness and our enslavement to sin. And then I'll come back, Lord willing, May 2nd, and teach on God's forgiveness and our future. So our hope and prayer is that the Lord would be kind to us in the weeks ahead to work the truth of his forgiveness deeper into all of our hearts in a way that would cause us to love him more and to work out that love in ways that demonstrate God's, God-glorifying surrender and obedience to everything he commands. So would you take your, take, bow your heads with me and take a moment and let's pray for that. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the truth of your forgiveness, and we confess, Father, that we are often not mindful as we should be of the greatness of the sin debt that we owe, of the greatness and the justification of the curse that stands against us apart from Jesus. Um, Father, often we don't walk in the freedom uh, because we haven't let those truths sink into our hearts. So I pray, Father, that during this time, you would give us wisdom uh, and give me clarity to communicate these things. And Father, I pray that we would all see them afresh and you would glorify yourself in them in ways that truly would sink deep into our hearts and stir us up to love your son and to love your people and to love all with the love that you've placed in our hearts through your redemption. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Okay, so that was sort of the introduction for the series. Um, So bear with me another brief moment as I introduce the aspect of God's forgiveness, which we'll focus on today. Uh, Today we start with God's forgiveness and our curse, because this is where the Bible starts, in terms of our need apart from Jesus. This is a situation that begins in the Garden of Eden. As you may recall, I unfolded this from Genesis 2 and 3 in the last few sermons that I preached from that book. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God gives the first indication in all history that all might not always be as good and as blessed as creation, and especially man in his reality, are described in Genesis 1 and 2. God told Adam concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So beginning there, and from the events that ensue with the fall of man in Genesis 3, we can trace the Bible's theology of curse. And that's what we're going to do this morning, and we will do it, as it says on your notes, from various texts, a number of various texts. Uh, and we're going to do so according to the outline in your notes. These are the, th- the, th- the three key facts 
about curse, that if you can get your head around them and have them sink deep into your heart, these key facts about curse will cause you to love Jesus more and to value his work more. Number one is the unspeakable ruin of curse. Number two is the deserving objects of curse. And then third is the complete removal of curse. Now, although I've divided the facts about curse into these three categories, you can probably tell from your notes if you turn them over that we're going to give more attention to the third point, the complete removal of curse, than to the other two. But, as you may have heard said before, for the good news to be really good, then you first need to know how truly bad the bad news is. And so we start with number one, the unspeakable ruin of curse. Now again, bear with me here, we're going to back up even a little further. In order to know how truly bad the bad news is, we need to be reminded of how good and how full of life everything was when God created it all. Open your Bibles, and this will be easy, to Genesis chapter 1, first page in your Bible. Let's look briefly at the creation account of Genesis 1. And the first thing I want you to note is how many times God said that what he created was good. In chapter 1, verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25, six times, God looks at what he created and says it was good. And then seven, kind of that number of completion uh, in the Old Testament, perfection. Verse 31, after the creation of man and woman, God pronounces everything very good. So all of this goodness coming from God through his creation in chapter 1. Similarly, note God's blessing in Genesis 1 and 2. In verses 22 and 28 of chapter 1, God blessed Adam and Eve. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, God blessed the seventh day, which represents completion and rest. This was the reality that God had created and how it would be according to his good design in perpetuity, and God blessed it. So, again, we have all of this goodness and now blessing coming from God. Finally, note how life comes from God. Again, chapter 1, verse 20. God creates living creatures in the water and in the air. Verse 24, God creates living creatures on the earth, the cattle and all the land animals. Verse 28, God gives man as the steward over all life on earth. And verse 30, God gives all vegetation the nourishment needed for life to every living creature on earth. And then most directly and most importantly, in chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So it couldn't be more clear that life comes from God, and particularly that the life of man comes from God. So all goodness is coming from God, all blessing is coming from God, and all life here is coming from God. You might recall from the sermon title from that text, Isn't God Good? That's, that's just the reality to grasp here. God's goodness overflowing into and through his creation. So much goodness, such vitality, and God's blessing to that life by his good provision of everything needed to sustain it. And so, if you think about it that way, in terms of this huge emphasis on God's abundant provision of goodness and life, then it might be a little jarring when we come back to that verse I mentioned a moment ago, verse 17 of Genesis 2, where God says this, But 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Did you catch the words I emphasized there? Evil, the Hebrew word ra'ah, which is the same word for bad, just the opposite of good. And die, the Hebrew form, or the, the verb form of the Hebrew word muth, death. What a contrast, isn't it? Friends, to get to the devastation of curse, the curse that came and has been with us since chapter 3 of Genesis, we need to see its contrast with the goodness of God in his blessing and in his gift of life. And as we saw in the sermon before last in Genesis, when Adam and Eve had eaten from the forbidden fruit, they became alienated from God. This is curse in its essence. Separation from God as the source of life and goodness. We see this work out in the details of the rest of Genesis 3. Verse 8, we read that the man and wife, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. You see, Adam and Eve know their alienation and willfully hide themselves from their source of life. And then we read God's words in verses 22 and 23. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So, although we saw in our last Genesis sermon it was not without promise, God from his side cuts man off from his special presence and from his provision of sustained life. Again, this is curse in its essence, separation from God and his life-giving goodness. But curse in its universally experienced and lamented effect is suffering, pain, and death. We see this unfolded and lived out in the subsequent history recounted in Genesis. And here I'm going to give just a brief bullet point summary. The woman is promised pain in childbearing and difficulty in marriage. The man is promised difficulty with his work until the day he dies. In chapter 4, with the story of Cain and Abel, we find the first human death, which is also the first murder. By chapter 6, we see such universal and thorough wickedness among men that God speaks of regretting that he made man. When we come to Genesis chapter 7, we find the most devastating account of curse in the whole Old Testament. God floods the whole world such that every living creature, every man, woman, child, and animal on earth, each and every one is brutally and painfully slaughtered. Can you imagine the horror? Many crushed, no doubt, by the weight of floodwaters and rushing debris. Many more certainly killed by drowning. Whereas God had given the breath of life, he now withheld it, in one of the most painful ways imaginable. The lungs made to take in air instead taking in water. A provision of life turned into an instrument of death. Until the life of each and every man, woman, child, and creature on earth was choked out so that they were no more. I think sometimes the scope and magnitude of this could be lost on us. Um, I think of just from childhood we hear the songs about Noah and his ark, and it seems like a happy thing. And, and that's true. There is salvation in that story. 
but the, the devastation of God's curse from this should not be lost on us. Additionally, because we know that there were only eight people left on earth after this, it could be lost on us the likely population of the world at the time of the flood. According to the guys at Answers in Genesis who crunch both Bible data and numbers, due to longer lifespans and therefore likely a higher growth rate, it's reasonable to think that the world's population at the flood was in excess of four billion people. Now, that's not certain, but it's a reasonable inference. Now, all of this gets to an aspect of curse I haven't directly mentioned yet. As I said, the essence of curse is separation from God as the source of goodness. But God's relationship to curse is not a passive one. Curse is not simply the removal of goodness. God's curse biblically is directly connected with God's wrath, with his active anger. And we see this, as I said, probably most clearly when we get to the flood. God's active anger against a world of men, women, and children who have descended into the depths of depravity and rebellion. God's active anger against every creature, such that he is willing to literally pour out on them in such a way as to crush them and suffocate them. Perhaps as many as four billion people, everyone on earth, crushing them and suffocating them until they are destroyed and brought to nothing. This is the unspeakable ruin, you might also say the unspeakable horror of curse. God's pure, wrath-filled anger against sin poured out on creatures, poured out especially on man, on people. Look rightly at the flood and you will see God's wrath-filled curse is staggering and devastating. It's the unspeakable ruin of curse. And closely connected with this is our fact number two about curse. Number two, the deserving objects of curse. Now, you probably picked up from what we've looked at already, not to mention that this is something obvious to us, as Paul says in Romans 1, even from general revelation, the deserving objects of curse are rebellious sinners. And it would probably be good enough to leave it at that were it not for the way that God purposes to communicate throughout Scripture how it is that he causes every mouth to be closed so that all the world may be accountable to God. And that's a good place to start. As you may have recognized, that language comes from Romans chapter 3. Open there with me for a moment. Flip over to Romans 3. I'm going to read here from verses 19 and 20 of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now what I want us to see here is how the whole world becomes accountable to God. Paul says it is through the law, that is through the Mosaic law. And yes, this is a technicality, but it's an important one. It has judicial overtones. What else has judicial overtones? And Pastor Dan is getting at this in the text he's preaching right now. Our salvation has judicial overtones. And that is part of why this is important. You see, we find early and often that sin leads to death and that that death is deserved. Adam and Eve were warned of sin's consequences and they deserved to die when they sinned. 
the potentially billions of people on earth at the time of the flood were so wicked. It's inescapable in Genesis 6 and 7 that they deserved to die. Now we know this. As Paul argues in Romans 5, we are all guilty in Adam, a reality that is evident from the fact that everyone from Adam to the giving of the law died, even though there was no new law given to them like the one given to Adam. But something Paul does in his argument there in Romans 5, and also in what we saw a minute ago in Romans 3, is he points to a key that helps us understand the function of the law as it relates to curse, but crucially also to salvation. Now, where does the original curse, the original warrant for our death, the reason everyone dies, where does that original curse come from? It comes from the fact that Adam and Eve were given this simple and gracious choice. God said to them, eat freely from this abundance I've provided and live. Or eat from the one thing I've forbidden and die. Now because of the choice he made, Adam and we in Adam are guilty and deserving of death. And again, that just desert is displayed as God deals with mankind as a whole through the events of the flood. But within Genesis, there soon comes a transition from God dealing with man as a whole to God dealing with nations after scattering everyone at Babel. And what we find is that God chooses the nation Israel as the object of his blessing. And not only as the object of his blessing, God chooses Israel as the nation through which he would mediate his goodness to the whole world. And much like the simple, gracious choice God gave to Adam and Eve, he gives a gracious and simple choice to the nation of Israel, saying to them, in essence, I am bringing you into a good land in which I will dwell with you. This good land has been occupied by wicked men. To rid this good land of its pollution, it will vomit these wicked people out. You are not to have mercy. In fact, you are to execute my justice against them, particularly against their leaders. You have a simple choice. And again, this is God speaking to Israel, kind of a paraphrase of everything he says to them in the, in the book of Moses. He presents to them a simple choice. Follow the good law of life I am giving you and live. That's what he says basically in Leviticus 18 verse 5. And as you live, you will mediate this life and blessing to the whole world. So there's your positive option. Or negatively, follow the law of death of the people being vomited out of the land and be cursed and be vomited out yourselves. It is, like Adam's before them, a simple choice for Israel. Life or death, blessing or curse. And much like Adam had the opportunity to obey and through his obedience to mediate God's goodness to all of creation, Israel had the opportunity to obey. And through their obedience to mediate God's goodness and blessings to all of the nations. Israel became the hope of the nations for blessing. And how did that go? In the same way as the instruction to Adam became death and curse to all humanity, the law of life given to Israel, which promised blessings for obedience, before long became a curse to the nation of Israel. God scattered them for their disobedience, and the more his prophets came and preached his law and judgments, the more they went astray and experienced his curse. 
And as they did so, the law through which they were to become a blessing to the nations actually became a curse not only to Israel, but also to the nations as well. This is exactly how the Bible speaks of the effects of Israel and its law. From Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 18, God says this, I will make Israel a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they have not listened to my words, declares Yahweh, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, but you did not listen, declares Yahweh. Similarly, and more briefly, Zechariah writes in chapter 8 that Israel and Judah had become a curse among the nations. This accords with Paul's words in Ephesians 2, which he directs to the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, saying that the law of commandments, that is the Mosaic law, contained in ordinances represented an object of enmity against us, leaving us excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And of course, as we read at the start of this point, a moment ago from Romans 3, the effect of that law through Israel was to close every mouth and to make all the world accountable to God. Now again, to review what we've seen here, God destroyed in the flood the entire world which was richly deserving of his curse of having his wrath poured out in their utter ruin. God then began working through nations, dispersing power and capability among the nations so that their achievements would be limited following Babel. God chose the nation Israel to be a blessing, but warned that they would become a curse if they disobeyed. And then Israel repeated Adam's folly, choosing death, and became a deserved and deserving curse to themselves and to the whole world. You see, Israel was supposed to display God's goodness and blessing and to cause the world to draw near to God and to his blessing. And instead, Israel became a ghastly display of God's curse and repelled the entire world from God and his blessing. So, to fill in our outline point, who is the deserving object of God's curse? Adam is, Eve is, Israel is, every nation is, The whole world is. I am. You are. We, every last man, woman, and child, we are the richly deserving objects of God's curse. Our first parents faced a simple and gracious choice. They sinned, and their guilt is justly imputed to us. Israel faced a simple and gracious choice. That nation, with every provision and every grace imaginable, rejected the law of life and blessing, and mediated curse and death to the world instead. Every mouth has indeed been stopped, and the whole world is absolutely accountable to God. But thankfully, the universal warrant for curse was not the only thing God built into his law of life. Now we've seen, number one, the unspeakable ruin of curse, Number two, the deserving objects of curse. And now we come to the third and thankfully the best fact about curse. Number three, the complete removal of curse. Here we approach a theology that finds its roots in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, known as the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel in the Bible. 
If you missed my most recent sermon in Genesis and would like to have that particular text unfolded in detail, you can access it on our app or on our website. Uh, It's in your notes there. It's called God's Solution for Sin, and I preached it back on January 17 of this year. Uh, Just briefly, what we find in the grammar of Genesis 3.15 is that there is an intentional interplay in that text between the many and the one. And careful exegesis of Genesis 3 indicates from the very earliest days, starting with Eve herself, from the very earliest days, God has granted saving faith, that is, faith that makes alive. God has granted saving faith by means of his promise that the curse due to the many would one day be removed by the one. And this theology is developed and built on throughout the, old, the whole Old Testament. Uh, and just briefly... This hope of salvation is expressed and carried through Noah and his family as they become a tiny remnant through the worldwide flood. It is reiterated and expanded on in the covenant with Abraham as God promises to include all nations in the blessing that would come through his seed, the Messiah. And then it's confirmed as Israel becomes a nation, a great nation in the womb, so to speak, of Egypt, and God begins to bring them to the land in which he would dwell with them and from which they are to mediate his goodness to the whole earth. But, as I've already mentioned, what happens then? Does Israel jump into faithfully fulfilling this good and graciously simple calling to reject the death laws of the nations and live out God's good law of life? Sadly, not. In fact, the opposite quickly happens, and it happens time after time. Israel turns away from trusting in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and Israel becomes covenant breakers who lust after the gods and ways and perceive pleasures and strengths of the nations. One such early case is greatly consequential in terms of beginning to set the stage for how God would ultimately follow through on his promise, even through rebellious Israel. Uh, And that text is Numbers chapter 25. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. When we come to Numbers chapter 25, Israel has just won unlikely victories over the nations of Bashan and Sihon. Having heard of these victories, Moab, with their king Balak, becomes afraid and seeks a way to withstand the impending threat from the nation of Israel. They've come out of Egypt, and now they're starting to conquer nations. You may recall that Balak's solution was to hire the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And maybe you remember that perhaps the most memorable thing about Balaam is that he had a talking donkey. Well, Balaam's experience with the donkey, and more importantly with the angel of Yahweh in that exchange ensured that Balaam was only going to speak the words that Yahweh gave him. And so, instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blesses and then speaks of their glory through their promised Messiah. That comes in chapters 23 and 24 of Numbers. And so, Balak, the king of Moab, was understandably upset with Balaam for doing the exact opposite of what he had hired him to do. But, we find in chapter 25, that Balaam wasn't finished. Although he couldn't curse Israel, he thought of another way to help Moab. Balaam's counsel to Balak and all of Moab was to tempt Israel with the fleshly allurements of its licentious and lawless idolatry. 
And Numbers 25 tells us how that went, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read here. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and Yahweh was angry against Israel. So, Israel goes the way of disobedience. Rather than choosing the law of Yahweh, who has blessed them, rather than following the law of life, Israel instead follows the statutes and ordinances of the nations as they join up with the Moabites in their idolatry and immorality. Now, notice at the end of verse 3 what comes from Yahweh in response to this. Yahweh was angry against Israel. This is God's active anger that I was talking about. This is God's curse breaking out against his people. But notice the instructions God gives in verse 4 in the midst of all this. Yahweh said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. So first, we see God's wrath, his angry curse breaking out against his people. But in the very next verse, he gives away for his wrath, his fierce anger, to be turned away from them. What is the way he gives for this to happen? Yahweh's wrath will be removed when the people's leaders are executed. And this is carried out in the text, starting in verse 5. Again, I'm going to read. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And then we see there in verse 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So again, let's review what we have here. We have the disobedience of the nation Israel as they rebel against God and go the way of other idolatrous nations. We have the wrath of God, his curse breaking out against them to slaughter them in his fierce anger. But then we have instruction from God to appease his wrath by executing the nation's leaders. And then, finally, we have that carried out as Phineas pierces through one of the leaders who is participating in the rebellion. And you can see from verse 14, by the way, that the man executed was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of his father's household among the Simeonites. So Phineas obeys God and executes one of Israel's leaders, one of the household leaders within the tribe of Simeon. And what is the result? God's anger, God's curse, is removed from the people. Now, you might be wondering, and you're, you're right to wonder, why does this perhaps obscure story from Numbers 25 matter in this discussion? And the reason is because it provides the context for Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And you don't have to, to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. Moses writes this. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. 
so that you do not defile your land, which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, I'm not going to go, th- I'm not going to be able to take the time to go through all the details on this, but I will mention that these two verses come as sort of a crescendo in its context. Of all the big sins and consequences, this is the biggest in Deuteronomy 21. The one that comes just before it is the consequence of stoning to death for anyone in Israel who would dishonor his parents. But compared with that offense and its consequence, this one is set apart. And it's set apart in a couple of ways that clearly connect back to Numbers 25, what happened with Phineas and the piercing through at Peor. So these are the ways in which it's set apart. The one who is to be executed in this way is bearing God's wrath. He's bearing the curse of God. And this becomes the law's provision to remove the pollution or the curse from the promised land to which God is bringing Israel to be a blessing. If the people will deal with the cursed representative and his body in this way, then the pollution, together with God's curse, will be removed from them and from their land. Now, we see this happen several times in Israel's later history. First, and again, I'm not going to ask you to turn to these passages, we find a couple of examples in the narrative account of Israel's conquest of Canaan. In Joshua chapter 8, when Israel defeats Ai, we read in verse 29 that Joshua hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua gave the command, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Then, a couple chapters later in chapter 10, after Israel had defeated the armies of the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lechish, and Eglon, all in one battle, we read, beginning in verse 26, So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. So, in the conquest, Israel followed the statute set forth in Deuteronomy 21 and modeled originally in Numbers 25. The kings of God's enemies were executed by piercing through, by hanging on trees. Their bodies were handled according to the statute, and their pollution was removed from the land and its people so that they could be blessed rather than cursed. Now, there's at least one other text where this statute is implemented in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, God's anger burned against Israel for three years, manifesting in three years of famine. When David sought the presence of Yahweh, Yahweh revealed that the reason for his anger was the blood guiltiness of the house of Saul for his murder of the Gibeonites. In response, David gave seven descendants of Saul to the Gibeonites for them to hang on trees. Now, although they failed to handle the bodies according to the statute, once David saw to it that they were removed and buried, we read in verse 14 of chapter 21 in 2 Samuel that God was moved by prayer for the land and the famine was ended. All right, so I realize that I've given you a whole lot of biblical data, but I'm giving it to you for good reason. What we've seen here is how God developed in the Mosaic law and in its implementation in later scripture, God has developed here a theology 
of curse. And more importantly, he has developed here a theology of the removal of curse from his people and their land so that he could bless them instead. Now, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And here's the key part. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, God had established that his wrath could be removed from a people and its land if its king were executed as their representative. His body pierced through and hung on a tree and then buried in a timely manner according to the law. And here in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul connects the death of Jesus directly to that theology developed in the Old Testament as he quotes Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Surely, Israel didn't see this coming, at least not at first. That Yahweh himself, in the person of the Son, the King of Israel, Jesus Christ, would be cursed for them, hung on the tree, cursed in their place. That God would make him who knew no sin to be sin on their behalf and on our behalf. This is what Jesus was anticipating in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked three times that the cup, the cup of the wrath of God, the cup of God's curse, he asked three times, if possible, that this cup would be removed from him. This is what Jesus was responding to on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was his experience like in that moment? Remember, I said that God's curse is not something passive. It is his active, fierce anger against sin directed at his object of curse. Here I'm going to borrow from Paul Washer, who says he borrowed these words from R.C. Sproul. And Sproul is getting these words mainly from the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Now this may be a little uncomfortable for you, and it should be. It should be sobering and maybe even a little shocking. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God from heaven answers back, The Lord, the Lord your God, curse you. The Lord send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly. The Lord smites you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness with none to save you. The Lord delights over you to make you perish and to destroy you, and you will be torn from the land. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is beneath you iron. You shall be a horror. You shall be a proverb and a taunt among all the people. Let all these curses come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. 
My friends, this is what you should hear. This is what I should hear. This should be our only greeting on the day of judgment. This is the only voice we should hear from God. But that voice fell upon his son. Now, I realize that this content has been pretty heavy and pretty dark. But remember, in order for the good news to be glorious, the bad news must be devastating. It must grieve our hearts. And hopefully it does, such that when we consider the other side of this, the glory shines. Look down again at Galatians chapter 3. What are the first few words of verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does that mean? It means that the curse is no more for us. Now, it occurred to me leading up to Easter, I should mention here, and I don't have this in my notes, but you can add it uh, on this point. The resurrection is the proof of this. It says in Romans 4, verse 25, that he was raised for our justification. And in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ hasn't raised them, we're still in our sins. His resurrection is the proof that curse is no more for us. And this is because Jesus, as it says in Psalm 75, drank the cup of the wrath of Yahweh down to its dregs. There is not a drop left for us. This is part of why I wanted to go through that painful exercise of singing Jesus, I, my cross, have taken at the beginning of this hour. And if you want, flip your notes over and look at these words in the third line of the last verse, and I've bolded them there for you. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Why did Jesus face the wrath-filled frown of his Father on the cross? So that we could know nothing of his wrath. Look again at Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Christ became a curse for us, it says, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Friends, on that cross, God treated Jesus, the perfect, holy, and blameless one, as if he were a lawless, rebellious covenant breaker so that he could treat us for all of our days. We who in ourselves are lawless, rebellious covenant breakers, as if we were perfect, obedient covenant keepers. Friends, here is what I hope you can walk away with today. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God, and in his wrath-bearing death on the cross, then God, today, tomorrow, and forever, God smiles on you with nothing but blessing. You, in Christ, are his pleasing child You walk before him in faith and are blameless. Your prayers and your ways are a pleasing sacrifice to him. He smiles on you. He is working everything, even the things that feel more like a frown than a smile. He is working everything from now until the day you see him face to face to do good to you.
suffering even, has become his instrument to move you closer to his goodness and his blessing. Sword, famine, and every kind of adversity are his tools to bless you by making himself and his promise more precious to you, even as this world and its troubles fade away. Friend, in our mighty, broad-shouldered Savior, our curse, my curse, your curse, was completely and gloriously removed according to God's perfect law, that beautiful theology that he wove throughout his book. Jesus bore his Father's angry frown so that we could know nothing but our Father's smile of blessing. What glory. Now, briefly, what does this mean for our day-to-day lives? Perhaps you've heard some of the stories of the martyrs in the early church. How many of them died on a Roman cross like Jesus. Some were even lit on fire, their bodies used to light the streets of Rome. These saints quite literally had to pick up their crosses and follow Jesus. And you know that their stories, preserved down through church history, tell us that many of these saints went to their crosses singing and joyfully declaring God's goodness. How could they be so full of joy in those horrific circumstances? Because they knew this glorious truth. Their father was smiling on them even as they went to their crosses. Jesus had borne the full fury of God. By comparison, the full fury of Rome was nothing to them. Because the the frown of God had crushed their Savior. Therefore, they knew the frowns of men and of their circumstances could not touch them. And so it is with us. You, You may not be called literally to a cross, but you are called to do hard and painful things. You are called to obey God's word day in and day out, even and perhaps especially when it feels like disobedience would be easier and would feel better. And so, let this truth free you to joyfully submit to your Father's good instructions with your whole heart, even in your worst circumstances, even in your death. Because of his complete removal, because of his complete forgiveness of your curse in Jesus, See what Father's smiles are thine. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the glory of your word and particularly for the glory of this gospel woven through it, how your wrath is removed justly from your people so that you could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in your son. Uh, Father, I pray that um, you would cause these truths to land in our hearts this morning. Um, Father, that you would cause them to be the pure and unadulterated truth of the word of God, nothing added to them and nothing taken away from them. Father, that they would bear the fruit that you purpose in your people for your great glory and for our great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.